If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The advancements in technology in the 1980s ushered in a whole new era of video game wonder. For the first time, it was like we could bring the arcade home with us. But this begs the question, with all the new releases, what is the best 1980s video game console? So that's what I'm going to attempt to do here today. Welcome to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out to the place where we discuss all the greatest things of the 1980s and video games of course is right at the top of the list and i don't know they define the decade for many of us you know most of the things i think of when i think of the 80s probably are related with video games and technology but before we start if you haven't already make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast i should be there and if you are a part of the patreon everything 80s movie club there will be a new movie review coming up in the next week or so and here's a hint it's it's halloween related and i don't know without giving away too much here, here's one hint i'm your boyfriend now nancy that probably gave it right away but um i'll talk more about patreon at the end of the show if you're interested in supporting a show like this and getting free audio content stuff like that okay let's get right into it so this will surprise you but this list is not going to going to include atari because as we go into the 80s Atari was starting to fade away from, you know, pop culture, basically. Essentially, the company went bankrupt. I'll cover more of that in a sec. And I think of it more as a 70s product. And that's really what Atari was. The period from 1983 then to the early 90s was considered the third generation of consoles. But there is a fourth generation of video game consoles that came out in the late 80s. I'll cover that in a moment too. It gets kind of convoluted here. So it's tough to narrow this down because of course there's a bias to each of them. And based on our own experiences with the different systems, I didn't have access to them all, but you know, I played pretty much all of them, some more than others. And you know, so it's I'm kind of ordering them, you know, from worst to first, but it's not a definitive order. I'll just say that right off. I'm just kind of putting them in a position that way. So as I mentioned, Atari being a 70s game console, if we're looking at the technical first video game console, it would have to be the Odyssey by Magnavox. That was released in North America, September 1972. And again, consider the first home video game system or game console. So this is Ralph Baer, who is a German-American engineer, and he created a ping-pong-style game. But that creation would inspire someone else, a gaming pioneer and 
sort of infamous legend, Nolan Bushnell of Atari. If you've seen Ready Player One, you know that's the name of that evil character, Nolan. And he created his own version, the much more popular and world-renowned Pong. Atari, of course, would become a juggernaut. But here's a few, um, just before we get into the more official list, here are a few systems you may or may not have heard of. So one of the interesting ones, as we're just speaking of Atari, one of their last kicks at the can was in 1986. And this is more depending on where you live. This is more West Coast based. This was the Atari 7800. And it was first released actually in 1984 in Southern California. And it was announced at the CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, in May of that year. Took a while to sort of roll out because, like I said, Atari was done and dusted at that point. And this was just sort of trying to resurrect it. And what was interesting is this system was about bringing classic arcade games into the home and that being the focus like going back to the their roots in a sense so with this atari 7800 i don't know you might have played this thing it had 13 games when they first launched it so including and including those classic uh, arcade games you had miss pac-man pole position 2 centipede joust dig dug nile flyer robotron 2084 galaga food fight ball blazer a track and field, Xevious, I think there's a few others. But, you know, some absolute classics right there. Another notable one, this is a throwback. I I definitely remember being aware of this, but it wasn't necessarily as big in North America, and that would be the Nintendo Family Computer Disk System. And if you, I'll cover this more in a sec, but if you know your video game history, you know the NES originated as the Famicom in Japan, the Nintendo Family Computer System. And this was an actual disk system that was around 1985 it came out, and it was to take some more of the advanced technology and try and put it into a similar and already familiar system. So basically it had a little more innovation to it, even though the Nintendo was going like wildfire. So like with this one, with the two controllers, the the player one, the first player can control and pause the game. And the second player had the audio controls. And this is one of the big advancements is the audio technology. And the other thing is that now it didn't have like the bigger bulky ish cartridges of the NES. It had actual like floppy disk, like the hard disk and they were inserted in the top instead of through a door in the front, like the NES was. And it had that, you know, didn't exactly look like that. You know, if you picture the super Nintendo, the way that was loaded, you're going to have to do a Google image search on this one. Um, but this is this still sold around 4 million units. And what it's significant for is because it was starting to, like I said, take advantage of that new technology and that they could use a little more, you know, sort of a higher end gaming function to it. Basically, the whole point of this thing is that it could save your progress. That was kind of the whole point. And that would lead into, you know, best selling games like The Legend of Zelda. Uh, Metroid, and it was a little more cost effective as well, too. And that was the big thing is that it would, again, the audio advancements and stuff like that. The thing is that it became pretty obsolete with this disc because the Nintendo technology in the original NES was now able to sort of do these same things. 
And, you know, I think it was trying to put out like, you know, if you have an iPhone, you then have, you know, like if you have the iPhone 13, you have then the i iPhone 13 Pro or the Pro Max. And I think that was the idea with this one for people who wanted, you know, a bit more computer-ish technology in the system and, you know, better audio and all that sort of stuff. So that's the Famicom disc system, which is very notable, but not that well known um, for how it was important for advancing the technology that would, you know, shape the games we'd know as, as we would know them. And then, you know, again, going into the 90s and the Super Nintendo and other systems like that. So let's go into the official list now going from, I don't even want to call these like worst to first. This is just sort of the order of relevance of the console, the impact it had, the technology it used, price factoring into that, pop culture, impact, influence, like, you know, trying to combine all these things. So I'll just go with it. So at number five, I've got the TurboGrafx-16 slash the PC Engine. So to me, the TurboGrafx-16 was like the stuff of legend. It seemed like a video game console from the future and only something rich kids could own. It technically predates the Sega Genesis for the 16-bit console sort of award, if you will, and it was released in Japan in 1987. It didn't enter the North American market until 1989. I think what gave this console some folklore is that no one had seen or played it if you had one of these i am forever jealous of you this this sort of you know i don't want to call it folklore but sort of you know kind of it was on the sort of periphery it seemed like a niche video game system and whatever it, it they really used the smart marketing campaign to build that mystique behind it and Ultimately, that marketing campaign was actually seen as a failure. The delayed release of the TurboGrafx-16 didn't help matters, and then the marketing became way too difficult. They're trying to you know, promote it as this underground system that not everyone has access to, but then no one could get access to it, and then all the actual delays made it you know, impossible to get. But here's what I never knew about the TurboGrafx-16. It really wasn't a 16-bit console. It was marketed as such, but was technically an 8-bit CPU. The marketing, plus having the 16 in its name, was seen as being deceptive. I never knew this. The thing was, the PC Engine, as it was known in Japan, was a monster hit. It was introduced earlier and still was better than 8-bit. When it debuted in Japan in 1987, it actually outsold the Nintendo Famicom, but it just couldn't cut it in North America. They even put out an enhanced version not soon after called the PC Engine Super Graphics. And again, I have vague memories of this. It also didn't catch on. The entire system would end up being discontinued in 1994. The thing is, if they had launched a bit earlier, they could have been what Sega became, potentially. The TurboGrafx-16 was released two weeks after the Sega Genesis, and it was just too late to play catch-up. It's like the same problem with the GoBots and the Transformers, just the timing and things like that, and you could have a whole other discussion here. Who knows what would have happened if they had launched even like a month before? To me, the TurboGrafx-16 is still somewhat of a mythical console. It seemed to be the high end of technology, but now we know it really wasn't. Okay, at number four for best console, you probably disagree with this, I've got the Sega Genesis. And it sold a whopping 35 million units. 
Sega would be first out of the gate, as mentioned, when it came to new 16-bit technology. It was released in 1988, and the Super Nintendo wouldn't come out for a full two years later until 1990. Some say that being first to the line, you know, arguably with 16-bit, might not have been the ideal strategy. They were so focused on just getting to the finish line first that maybe a few things were lost along the way. Even though Nintendo was late to the game, it gave them enough time to take the, that technology to the next level. You could say that Sega learned from the mistakes they made with the Master System and applied their new knowledge to the Genesis. The one big thing they had going for them this time around was a unique character to represent the console and one of the greatest video game characters in history, Sonic the Hedgehog. With this new 16-bit technology, the console now had the ability to display amazing graphics along with different features such as sprites, tiles, and scrolling. You probably remember seeing Sonic for the first time and being amazed at the scrolling backgrounds and gameplay. That blew my mind. Fun fact, Tonka was one of the first distributors of the Sega Master System, but that didn't go so great. Sega then turned to Atari, of all people, to help launch it, but Atari declined. It was so hard to market against Nintendo, and also due to the fact there were rumors of a 16-bit Nintendo console coming soon too. They expected to sell a million units at first, but only sold 500,000. But the Genesis just needed time to grow. Due to the popularity of Sonic and people realizing how great the Genesis was, even compared to the, S, uh, the Super Nintendo, it actually outsold the Super Nintendo during the 1991 holiday season. So for a short while, Sega controlled 65% of the 16-bit market, and that is pretty amazing. Okay, at number three, and I know it's not technically a console, but it's extremely significant, the Nintendo Game Boy. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally, and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Game Boy was late to the party in the 80s, but it comes in just at the end of the decade in 1989. But, you know, whatever you want to call it, it was a groundbreaking new console, whether, you know, it's just a handheld one or whatnot. For the purpose of this, we'll call it a console just because that was the whole idea of the Game Boy. It was like taking the NES anywhere you went. Even though it had a black and white screen, that was a huge debate when they were putting this thing together and how they were going to launch. It, that incredible. It didn't matter that it was black and white. The essence of the NES was still there. You had the familiar controller built right into it. I did an episode not too long ago about the Nintendo Game & Watch and how that really might be the foundation of modern video games. And they had that familiar D control pad built in the Game & Watch and then they transferred that over to the Nintendo and then to the Game & Boy. So it was, you know, you picked it up right away and you knew how to play it. And that familiarity was really important right along the way. But that, you know, like that classic control pad had been used ever since. It was, you know, 
first debuted in that Game & Watch way, way back. And it was kind of that, like, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Keep things as simple as possible. And that, again, was the big appeal of the Game Boy. The Game Boy was actually released in July of 1989. And, of course, the technology seems quaint now, but you remember this thing if you grew up at the time. This was an absolute frenzy when it came out. It wasn't a crappy handheld game. You know, no disrespect to the Game & Watch or other little things you'd pick up at dollar stores or whatnot. This was a genuine video game console, and you could take your games on the go. And like any good console, a flagship game would be responsible for its success. And in the case of the Game Boy, that game was Tetris. When the Game Boy was released, it sold 40,000 units its first day. It was then off and running to being the number one selling toy of 1989. And that's a whole other thing. You know, do you consider this thing a toy, a video game, a console? I think it's all those things combined. Basically, whatever it was, it was the number one selling thing for kids that year going into that Christmas. Okay, number two, you're seeing how this whole thing's playing out. (laughs) Number two, the Sega Master System. The Sega Genesis is part of that third generation of video game consoles because it uses 8-bit technology. This is the defining characteristic of that generation. The Sega Master System started out as a whole different video game console, the Sega Mark III. It went by this name in Japan before it was released as the Sega Master System in North America in 1986. This is where all the terminology kind of gets confusing. Sega and Nintendo were neck and neck during the third generation of consoles. Even if you hate Nintendo, it did dominate the market and the decade, honestly. The Master System was great, though, but I didn't know that many people that had one. You may be in a different situation. I remember one like good friend specifically It seemed more of a piece of technology compared to the NES, which seemed more like a toy again, if that makes sense. And that was a big move. And I've done a whole show on this as well. That was a big move by Nintendo. That show did the history of Nintendo. That was their big thing is they didn't want to be necessarily defined as a video game. They, They wanted to be seen maybe more as a toy because that opened them up to a bigger market. That would include kids, teenagers, young adults, the whole deal. So that's why they would, you know, they would go with a control deck instead of being called a console. And it was a game pack instead of a cartridge, all that sort of thing. The other problem with the master system was the lack of available games. Even though they used cool cartridges and they had the credit card size Sega cards, there just wasn't that many titles available compared to the NES. The other problem Again, you don't always realize this looking back. The games weren't that great. You know, some were, but a lot of them weren't well-reviewed. Sega went with an aggressive $15 million, astonishing for the time, marketing campaign to launch the Master System. And the hope was that they would sell 400,000 to 750,000 consoles. They only sold 150,000. This was more than Atari was selling but way short of Nintendo's 1.1 million console sales. It looks like this thing is lackluster, but it really wasn't. I would say the technology was ahead of its time. They just didn't know how to market and package it as well as Nintendo. They also, big problem, didn't have a flagship game and character to be the face of the product. Again, 
They learn all their lessons, and that would change with the launch of the Sega Genesis. But again, it's the Master System is still iconic and an important part of video game history. And again, like I said, a little technically underrated and a little a touch more advanced for the time than it even needed to be and again it just came down to the positioning the timing how do you promote this thing if it came out a bit earlier it you know might have ruled the roost whatever it's not like things went bad for sega it was just this didn't launch as good as it should have and of course this takes us into number one (laughs) no shocker here the nintendo entertainment system So if you were a video game tester, say, or a game developer in the 1980s, you obviously had access to all the technology, all the consoles, all the PCs, everything like that. There, And in that case, and maybe you played every system, you knew there were some that were probably better, but they're not necessarily available for the general public, or there's a limited release, or they're too expensive. With the NES, you got that groundbreaking new console that did change the trajectory of video games forever. And it's important to start this list, I guess any list, always with the NES. And also because it helps save the video game industry. And if you've been by this show before, you know I've covered this a lot. The downfall of Atari, the downfall, the great video game crash of 1983. And that's Atari ruling the roost, like I said, going to the 80s and looking like they'd be on top forever, but they got complacent, maybe a bit cocky. The problem was there were no standards on the video games that could be released for Atari, so third-party developers could put out any piece of crap they wanted. Atari didn't care. They were making so much money. They, They just like flood the market with whatever. Who cares? There was no competition. But then, like I said, the quality of these games were garbage, and the public was starting to lose faith in the company. The games weren't cheap, and you're doling out all this money, or if you're a little kid and you're saving up all your allowance and your birthday money to buy this game, like the E.T. Atari video game, and it's a piece of crap, you're not going to want to buy another game. And you're going to be kind of pissed at this company for creating this trash, you know, and you're going to go back and play the original games, and then there's nothing new out there. So... It's not, if you know your video game history, like I said, if you've been around this show, the E.T. Atari video game isn't primarily responsible for the downfall of Atari and the industry, but it really didn't help. The truth was this was already on the way to happening and the backlash to the E.T. Atari video game was so harsh and so severe, it probably pushed it over the edge. The industry almost imploded overnight and stores and toy companies didn't want anything to do with video games anymore. It's crazy to think about it. Big companies like Hasbro Mattel had started to invest in games but got so burned by the video game crash they vowed to disassociate themselves forever. So, sounds like a terrible time to put out a new console. But you obviously know the rest of the story because the Nintendo that started as the Famicom in Japan was a big hit. And they repackaged and relaunched for the North American uh, American audience as the Nintendo Entertainment System in 1986. And like I said, they changed everything. They didn't want to be a video game. They were an entertainment system. And like I said, game packs, there's not cartridges, the control deck. Uh, the one big feature they did was instead of having the top loading um console like they did with the Famicom and like Atari did they went with the front loading 
because it was more like a VCR. And again, that seemed more entertainment based. So a very smart move. By 1986, the NES had completely revolutionized the video game market. Home games were back in a big way and there would be no looking back. Again, you need a flagship game and a character to launch. And of course, that was Super Mario. And that took the console and the company to the next level. But it was also a big uh, part to do with its success was Duck Hunt of all games. And I've done an episode about Duck Hunt if you want to go back and check that out. And they were really thinking, they weren't necessarily all in on Mario. They didn't know what a hit it would be. They really thought Duck Hunt was going to be the big game. And it obviously was, but everyone found out how great this game with the little plumber was. And that just took the uh, console to the next level. So the NES, of course, was the juggernaut. It sold 62 million units. That would be the best-selling video game console until the 1990s when who do you think took over sony playstation with 102 million sold and that would be the long reigning champion until the next top console and number one of all time playstation 2 155 million sold this could change a lot but i mean outsold xbox xbox 360 all the whole deal so went nintendo playstation playstation too. So I thought it'd be interesting just to look at, besides the consoles just and talking about those specific video games that are so important to the console, uh, look at the best-selling games of the 1980s. So no surprise here, but Nintendo dominates those that category. Of the top 10 best-selling video games, only one is not an NES game, and it belongs to Atari. So you can probably guess what game it is, too. Uh, we'll run it down here. So number one best-selling game of the 80s, Super Mario, of course, in 1985 with 40.24 million units. Number two, Tetris, 1984 as well, 30.25 million. Number three, as I mentioned before, Duck Hunt, uh, 28.31 million units. Then Super Mario Land in 1989, 18.37. Super Mario Brothers 3 in 1988 was 17.28 million. Then it drops off quite a bit. Super Mario Brothers 2 comes in at number six, and it only sold 7.46 million units. Number seven is Pac-Man for the Atari. That's 7 million. Number eight is The Legend of Zelda in 1986, 6.51 million units. Then at number nine is Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link in 1987, 4.38 million. And to round at the top 10, a game you'd probably never expect in there, Excite Bike. Remember that? 1984, 4.16 million units. I should just point out that Tetris... This is pre-Game Boy Tetris, and it sold that many units because it was available for every platform you could ever think of. It's available anywhere you can play a video game. It's always been there. And then, of course, Game Boy's success with Tetris would happen more in the 90s, where it became one of the best-selling video games ever. But that's just the rundown there. So I'll finish it there. Hopefully you found this interesting, just to look back at the great consoles and video games in general. And just the way I kind of order them, which I totally understand if people disagree with my order, but just, you know, a look at what what made each console significant, how it stood out, um, you know, impacted the culture or didn't impact the culture and, you know, some that maybe should have been better than they were. So that's it for me. If you have to take off, that's no problem. Close out here if you're done. But if, like I said at the beginning of the show, if you're interested 
or in the position to support a show like this, that's where patreon.com comes into play. So that's the platform to support these small independent shows for as little as a few dollars a month. But the difference here is you get audio rewards depending on what tier um, you sponsor at. So like I said, the the middle tier I have is the Boba Fett tier, and that gives you access to the Everything 80s Movie Club, which I mentioned before. So I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 1980s movies. There's also a ton of stuff there where I post you know, behind-the-scenes pictures from movies. We do Saturday morning cartoons every now and then. Um, anything I just find interesting, we put up there, and it's a way for you know people to interact. So if you want to learn more, if you're interested in, in supporting something like this, you can go to patreon.com slash 80s, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80s, or wherever you're listening, there'll be a link. Uh, if you go into the show notes, there'll be a link to take you there if you want to check it out. Okay, that's it for me. Thank you for spending your time with me. I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.